to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's Word. And so I want to read our passage for us this morning, and I want to encourage you to read along in your own copy of God's Word, and the verses will be on the screens as well. Uh, the passage is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and it begins saying this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you will bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. Lord, that it is inerrant. Lord, that in it are the words to life. And Lord, in it, you point to your son, Jesus. And so Lord, we thank you for his precious blood that was shed for us on Calvary and that through trusting in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. And so Lord, be with us this morning. Be with Pastor Stephen as he faithfully preaches and proclaims your word. Give him clarity of mind. And Lord, be with us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Hearts that are willing to be shaped and molded and conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, it has been a little while, <clears throat> but we are finally back in James. Now, if, if you are new here in the last five months, or if you have a bad memory, you're visiting with us this morning, or, or maybe you just kind of tune out every time that I preach. Uh, I committed to you a while back that, that when I have the honor of filling the pulpit for Pastor Kevin, that we would just go through the book of James. And we have done that slowly. And after a holiday and then a series on home teams, we're back this morning in James chapter four, verses one through 10. Something helpful to know about James is that it's the half-brother of Jesus, and he is writing to Christians who have been scattered all over, uh, and, and this is a particular hub that he's writing to, and uh, James is a very practical book, okay? It, it's not a high emphasis on doctrine, but really on practicality, and that's not because James doesn't care about doctrine. It's only because James understands that doctrine rightly understood becomes practical. It affects us in a practical way. That's why James says in chapter two, verse 17, right? Faith without works is dead, right? The truthfulness of the doctrine that we embrace is really shown by the way that we live it out, the beautiful thing about Christianity is that when we rightly understand the doctrines that we claim to believe, not only does it help us know God better, but it helps us live life the way that it was intended to live. 
James is writing to Christians who have missed that, right? We, we believe that truth should always travel, right? Truth travels from our head into our heart, into our hands, out into our habitat. Truth affects the way that we live, but somewhere along the way, truth has been roadblocked for these Christians. Their doctrine has failed to affect the way in which they're living their lives. And so that is what James is addressing throughout his book, right? And this is evident that their doctrine is not practical for them by the quarreling that they have, the conflict within the church. He asks uh, in verse one of chapter four, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, this is a question that James will answer himself, and what he does is he goes on to help them understand that their doctrine is not making its way into the way that they're living, that there's a discrepancy there. But what I love is the methodology that James uses to show them this, right? James uses a powerful tool that we call contrast, The tool of contrast is what he's implementing here in his argumentation, right? And you know that contrast is a powerful tool. That's why we say things like, they don't know how good they have it, or, well, she's always settling for less. Because when we say those things, what we really mean is, there's something about their situation that they don't see correctly, but if they had some contrast, then they would understand. Right? If they only knew the other side of the coin, they would see the contrast to know they deserve better or maybe they don't deserve better or maybe it's going pretty good. And so he's using contrast. Let me, let me give you a few examples of just the power of contrast, okay? So uh, for many of you guys growing up, you thought that this was a high quality video game, right? You thought, like, like, this is me, by the way. Like, I played this as a kid, and I was like, this is awesome. And my parents were like, wow, that's in color. That is awesome. And we thought that this was really cool. Until recently, we bought a Nintendo Switch at my house, and now we're playing the new Mario Kart, which looks like this, right? And what I did is actually you can download and go play the old version of it, and I did that, and I was like, this is awful. Like, why did I think this was fun or good when I was a kid? Because it took some contrast for me to see that old Super Nintendo Mario Kart, it's not like the new one, right? For many of you, there was a season in which this is the guy that you thought was a superhero, right? This is the one that you said, you know, if I'm ever in a fight in an alley, I want that guy. Who are you gonna call? It's gonna be Batman. That's who I want, right? But contrast shows us that's probably not the one that we want, right? Now we want this guy. This is a much better choice. If I'm being attacked in an alley, I want that one, right? We used to think that was a superhero and contrast helped us see, oh no, that's a superhero, right? Uh, In the same way for some of you, myself included, you think that this is something that needs to teach patience in us, right? We think that those three little dots while someone's waiting to respond, we're like, oh, okay, God's just teaching me patience. These three little dots have been here for like ever, 30 seconds, right? But contrast says that, that really this is what learning patience had been like, right? It's a long line, it's a telephone booth. So you see the power of contrast? It comes to show us a more clear depiction of reality a better understanding of our current circumstance. 
That's exactly what James is doing in our passage today, is he's taking two different things, he's putting them side by side so that we see contrast, so that Christians he's writing to would understand, hey, that's, that's not how it is supposed to do. So they'll see their behavior with more clarity. The two things that he's contrasting, one he calls friendship with God, and the other he calls friendship with the world. He's taking this idea of friendship with God, and this idea of friendship with the world, he's putting them side by side to show Christians there is a better way. This is not how it's supposed to look. And the first thing that he shows us is that these two types of friendship are not just different, but they're opposed to one another. They just don't work. Friendship with the world and friendship with God are mutually exclusive friendships. We see this in verse four, right? He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is showing that this idea of being friends with the world and friends with God, at the same time, it's not possible. These are two types of friendship, again, mutually exclusive, in contrast with one another. And the opposite of this is true as well. Jesus tells us in John 15, 18 through 19, right? He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And this is why the world hates you. So friendship with the world is enmity with God, but Jesus also says friendship with God means that the world isn't gonna like you. These are opposed to each other. And yet at times I think we live under this illusion that these two types of friendships can coexist. I think we, we wanna live with one foot in friendship with the world and, and one foot in friendship with God and, and we convince ourselves that it is possible. These Christians that James is writing to had convinced themselves that it is possible. And what James is making abundantly clear here in verse four is it's not. That's not a reality for Christians, it cannot be. In 1957, <clears throat> Time Magazine wrote an article about a man named Mickey Cohen. Now, Mickey Cohen was a notable gangster in New York, right? His occupation was crime. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew he was crooked. Well known. But one day, Mickey Cohen, this well-known gangster in New York, he sat down to have a meal with Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, the great evangelist, sits down with him, shares the gospel with him. And upon hearing the gospel from Billy Graham, Mickey Cohen makes a profession of faith. He says, I want that. I wanna be a Christian. I'll confess that. And so from that point on for the rest of his life, Mickey Cohen was a professing Christian. The problem was that Mickey Cohen didn't count the cost as Jesus said in Luke 14. Mickey Cohen wasn't willing to actually repent or change anything about his lifestyle to turn his back on his friendship with the world. 
And so when other Christians came along to Mickey and they, they called him out, they confronted him for his lack of change, his unwillingness to change his lifestyle, Mickey Cohen responded. He said, Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians, why not a Christian gangster? He refused to ever change. Now this seems silly to us, but I think a lot of us are living as if friendship with the world and friendship with God can coexist in the same way that Mickey Cohen did. And James is seeking to dispel this sentiment for us today. Now, a couple clarifications here are necessary, okay? So when James says friendship with the world, we need to understand collectively, what does he mean, right? When I say friendship with the world, what does that, what does that entail? It's so the first thing it does not entail. It does not mean what James is not saying is that you can't be friends with people who aren't Christians. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you should treat anyone with lack of respect or lack of dignity or lack of kindness or associate. He's not saying that. He's not, he's not saying anyone that's not a Christian that's of the world, turn your back on them. That's not the point here. He's also not saying that the physical world is evil and that we should refuse all things in the physical world. This seems odd to us, but this was actually a huge issue in the early church. It was a heresy known as Gnosticism. And it was refuted in the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, where people thought the physical world itself is evil. And therefore, we must reject as much of the physical world as possible. That's not what James is saying. It's not about rejecting people in the world. It's not about refuting the physical world. What James means when he says friendship with the world is embracing the evil world system that lies under the influence of Satan. Not the people of the world, not the physical world, but the value system of the world, right? Being a Christian means rejecting the value system of the world. Now I'm gonna be honest with you, confess to you, this is hard for me to wrap my head around practically. Right? This, this is difficult for me to even figure out what does this mean on a practical level, right? Because we have this dichotomy of living in the world, but now we're not supposed to live of the world. And so how do we live and function and operate in a world system without living like the world system? And I think this is far more difficult, far more convoluted than we care to admit. These are messy questions. This is a hard tension. This is a hard balance, right? How much can we live in the world before we're living too much like the world? And how much like the world is okay? I don't know, right? How much is too much? Where's the line? Where's the balance of living in the world but not of the world? How much wealth is appropriate before it replaces God as our ultimate comfort? I don't know what that number is. When do extracurricular activities go from being a gift from God to being something that replaces God on the throne of our lives? How many games 
can we go to before we miss church and it's okay when it's not okay? When does fashion go from being something that's a, that's a God-given creative outlet of self-expression to, to something that's a means for self-glory? How big of a house is too big of a house? How expensive of a car is too expensive of a car? How much money to the poor is enough money to the poor? How much television and entertainment is permissible and how much is a violation of using the time wisely as we're told to do in Ephesians? Right? How much pleasure is a gift from God as the creator for us to enjoy and, and give God glory for? And how much pleasure is too much pleasure and self-seeking? These are hard questions. I don't know. I do find great comfort in knowing that this is not a new problem. These are not questions unique to us right now in this time. In the fourth and the fifth century, Christians in Rome lived under the time of, of Emperor Constantine. And Constantine was actually converted. The emperor becomes a Christian. He issues the Edict of Milan, right? Which effectively ends persecution for Christians in Rome. But what happens is that the Christians in Rome got very comfortable with Rome. What happened is the Christians began to conflate Christianity and heavenly citizenship with Roman citizenship. They saw them as the same thing. They saw friendship with God and friendship with the world as two synonymous realities. I wonder if sometimes we don't do that here, right? Where we just assume being an American citizen and being a heavenly citizen have to just be the same thing because of the favor that God has given our country for so long we start to feel very much at home. What happened was in 410, Rome was sacked by the German Visigoths. This, this group of barbarians came in and they sacked Rome. And Christians were appalled that, that God would let this happen. They were just shocked. How could God allow such a thing? Rome, the city of Christianity, sacked by barbarians. Because they had conflated Christianity with Roman citizenship. In response to the struggle that ensued for Christians, the great theologian Augustine, he wrote a book entitled The City of God. And in this book, he attempts to differentiate between what it means to be a citizen of heaven and what it means to be a citizen of the world. Or to use the language of James, right? Differentiate between what does it mean to be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Augustine reasoned from the New Testament that we're called first and foremost to be friends with God and citizens of heaven. And yet there is this dichotomy in which God has left us as citizens of heaven to live in this world. And so there's this tension 
What Augustine reasoned is that there must be purpose for this, right? This is not by accident. This is not an oversight by our wonderful creator to go, whoops. It's a purposeful tension because we as Christians have a purpose as citizens of heaven on this earth. Augustine reasons that Matthew 5, 14, right, tells us our purpose is to be a city on a hill, a light to the rest of the world, to demonstrate God's glory and the power of the gospel. But that only works if we live according to a value system that is distinctly different from the value system of the world. Augustine recognized Christians are no longer accomplishing our purpose as citizens of heaven when we neglect our heavenly citizenship for at-homeness and friendship with the world. Again, what exactly does this look like? I don't know. Where's this line of living? How much is too much? I don't know. What does it look like to be in the world but not of the world? What does it mean to function as citizens like we have to do here without embracing the value system of the world? This is a struggle, but here's my challenge for you. Are you even asking that question in your life? Are we even asking these questions in our houses? Now, I'll confess, I don't have the answer. I don't know how much is too much. I don't know how big of a house is too big. I don't know how much fashion is, is an artistic ex- expression and how much is for your own glory. I don't, I don't know those answers. But I just wanna say, ask the question. Are you having these conversations? Are you struggling? Are you struggling with the reality that we're citizens of heaven and yet left in this world? Or are we just floating with the current of culture? They're hard questions. The answers are probably different for each of you. But they're questions that we need to be asking. And if we're not asking them, it's quite likely that we are embracing friendship with the world far more than what we realize or would care to admit. Not only is this a struggle because we live in the world, but not of the world, but it's a struggle because inside of us as citizens of heaven, we want to do things that God's called us to do, and yet we still have a sin nature. We still have a brokenness about us. This is what James says in James um, 4, 1 through 2, right? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Your passions are at war within you. So we see in Galatians 5, 17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. So not only do we live in the world, but not of the world, but we have within us a battle of a desire to please God as citizens of heaven and a fleshly desire to please ourselves according to the ways of the world. And James is clarifying here that friendship with the world is an unchecked lifestyle of pleasure-seeking at all cost. It's when we're not asking the question, what does it look like? How much is too much? What is the value system of the world that I've bought into? It's just doing what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want, with who we want. 
It's a, it's a reckless abandonment of pursuit of earthly pleasures with no thought to our heavenly king. Do you feel that struggle? I think some of you, you probably live with that struggle all the time. Some of you, you're like, man, I don't even know what that struggle is because I'm not even thinking about that. It's not even on my radar. I'm just kind of doing life the way I want to do it. A great litmus test for this is, is when there's something in your life that you're willing to sin in order to get it or something in your life that if you don't get it, you're going to sin. It creates conflict within us. Conflict with God as we see with the Christians that James is writing to and conflict with each other. What happens is friendship with the world is internalized as we're around it. And then it's rationalized, right? To the point where our sin is justified and then normalized. We get so engulfed in friendship with the world that, that it becomes internalized within us and then rationalized and then our sin is justified and then again, it's normalized. We don't see it. The problem with this is that it's built on a lie. That's what James wants you to see is that the, the, the value system of the world, it's built on a lie. Satan from the very beginning his first words to Adam and Eve, built on a lie, right? It's deceit. The entire world system, it operates on deceit. John Mark Comer says it this way, we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. So we become friends with the world. We live according to the passions, according to the flesh, seeking pleasure wherever we can get it, how we want, when we want. Here's the fix. James turns us to the truth. He contrasts his friendship with the world with friendship with God. And he turns us to truth. And, and as always, that truth begins with the character of God. Right? He uses this, this powerful coordinating conjunction. It's, the, it's an amazing word. It's what we see in Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses, but God. That same word, but, that coordinating conjunction here, but. Friends with the world, seeking your own pleasure. Look at James 4, 5 through 6. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that Scripture says... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. James is not talking about saving grace here. He's writing to Christians. These Christians have already experienced saving grace. They're already believers. They have that. This is after conversion, this tension within them. The best way to read this idea of more grace is greater grace. Not saving grace, but sustaining grace, right? That means it is grace that gives us as citizens of heaven everything that we need to live as obedient citizens of heaven in a fallen and broken world. 
This is a sustaining grace that helps us live in this world, but not of this world. Not perfect citizens, right? There's always a struggle, but obedient citizens. So while friendship with the world is driven by our sinful and fleshly desires, friendship with God is motivated by his grace transforming our deepest desires, which enables obedience for us. Hey, do you guys know that his grace is more? His grace is more? Listen, I, I don't know what you walked in here with today. I don't know what kind of indwelling sin struggle you've got going on. I don't know what type of burden you're carrying or shame and guilt that is all over you or whatever regret you have. I don't know, but I know this. His grace is more. Do you hear that? Whatever your struggle is, his grace is more, Christian. It's beautiful. Verse five illustrates this so powerfully. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you? This is what James is saying. He's saying, even when we fall short and embrace friendship with the world, the Holy Spirit within us becomes jealous over us and our affections. Uh, this isn't an insecure jealousy, right? Like I had over my girlfriend in eighth grade when another boy would look at her. This isn't an insecurity that the Holy Spirit has. This is a deep longing and love. Think about what that means. The implication is that even when we're sinning and chasing the world, we are so greatly and dearly loved. Even in our love affair. James uses the word adulterers. Even in our adultery with the world, you are dearly loved. Think about that. Alec Motier says it this way. This passage reminds us that God is tirelessly on our side. The Holy Spirit in us becomes, um, I'm sorry, on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at our hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put the self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation. For there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he's never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. And do you know that in your most foolish moments, in your greatest mistake, in your biggest blunder, you are tenderly loved by Christ. In your greatest flaw, you are tenderly loved by Christ. Think about that. 
Dane Ortland says, it's so hard when we look at ourselves and our own brokenness to anticipate anything other than, than anger and impatience and, and, and wrath from God. But when we look to God, we see tenderness and gentleness and patience. Hey, are you struggling with friendship with the world? I am too. I'm so grateful that I can anticipate tenderness and patience from my savior. Throughout the remainder of the passage, it becomes clear that the way in which we receive this more grace, this sustaining grace that enables us to live out obedience. It's by submission through humility, right? While friendship with the world means we're elevating ourselves, we're elevating who we are, we're elevating our status, we're posturing and polishing resumes, Friendship with God, in contrast, is humility. It's submission. It's getting off of the pedestal and getting down on our knees. James 4, 6 through 7, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sustaining grace, more grace, Never running dry grace is freely given to the humble. Basul of Caesarea, he was the, the bishop of Cappadocia. He was one of the theological giants of the early church. He preached a sermon on humility where he attributes the fall of Satan and Adam and Eve and all of humanity to the ultimate sin of pride. He says it was pride that caused Satan to rebel, to think he should be in charge. It was pride of autonomy that caused Adam and Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit in hopes of becoming like God. Gavin Ortland says it was pride that made paradise look like an insult to Adam and Eve. Imagine that. They had anything they could ever wanted and yet because of pride, how dare God not let us have this fruit? He says this, Basil of Caesarea in his sermon, our surest salvation, the healing of our wounds, our way to returning to our beginnings is to be humble. Not to think that we can ever of ourselves put on the cloak of glory, but that we must seek it from God. I think we misunderstand humility sometimes as, as weakness or self-defeating. C.S. Lewis says that humility is the greatest of virtues. It's like a glass of cold water to the man in the desert. How joyful to not always be thinking of ourselves, to not always be posturing and increasing our value. My daughter went through this phase where she always wanted to get dressed by herself when she was very young. And, um, she couldn't quite do it yet. So her head would end up in an armhole or an armhole in a leg hole. And it was kind of just this big messy thing. But she was insistent she would do it herself. And so I would say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna help you get dressed today. And she would say, no, I got it myself. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna carry my load here, okay? And I would stand outside of her door and just hear her just scream and yell in frustration. And she would be kicking and hitting the wall and throwing stuff with her head, trying to come through a pant hole and, and so frustrated. I would say, can I help you? And she would say, no, I'll do it myself. And this would go on and it would go on until finally I would poke my head in and say, hey, can I help you? 
Yes. Have you guys come to that point in your life where you've come to the end of yourself? Say, okay, God, I need you to help me. That grace that James was talking about, I need that. The more grace, I need that too. The sustaining grace, I need that too. I can't be obedient on my own. I need that grace. Humble yourselves. Ask for that. After, after this, James gives us a list of imperatives in verses seven through 10, right? The emphasis again is the grace comes before the imperatives. Verse six, more grace comes before we're given a list of things that we're supposed to do. Because again, this is sustaining grace. It's grace that enables us to live this out. Augustine, who wrote City of God, also wrote a book called Confessions, where he prayed, give me grace to do as you command. He understood that it was this supply chain of grace that sustained him for obedience, not his own ability, not his own goodness, but grace. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, we read, by God's grace, he will produce fruit in you. So here's our imperatives four, seven through nine. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. All right, so we're tracking for a little bit, right? Like resist the devil, makes sense, okay? I'm with you, avoid temptation, that's good. Draw near to God, okay? We should draw near to God, go to church, pray, that's good. Okay, cleanse your hands and purify your heart, right? We're gonna do what Mickey Cohen, the New York gangster, never did, is we're actually gonna repent and change some stuff inside that God does by grace and then change some habits outside. But then it gets a little bit odd, right? It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Turn laughter into mourning, and joy to gloom. Now, this is where you guys should feel bad for me because I'm reading this going, I gotta preach this? I mean, like, really, really fun, James. This will be good. Be real popular after this one. It's odd to us, right? It feels depressing and it feels sad. What do you mean turn our joy to mourning? Our laughter to weeping? This is what it means. Here's the contrast. Friendship with the world means we minimize God's holiness and we minimize our brokenness. Friendship with God means it is a grace that we see God for the holy God that he is and we see our brokenness for what it is. A friend told me one time, the mark of a mature believer, it's not necessarily how much you sin, but how much your sin bothers you. John Stott said it this way, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we must see the cross as something done by us. You see, in, in the world's value system, it celebrates this idea of, of self-esteem and, and denying all negative feelings. Anything that makes you feel bad, just kind of take it off, that's not good for us. Deny that. What James is saying here is that friendship with God means we weep and we mourn over our sin. It's grace that we're even able to do that. Isn't that wild? It's God's grace that makes us broken over our sin. When's the last time we really sat and wept 
in our brokenness and in our sin. I mean, it is all about grace and the cross is a wonderful thing, but I think sometimes we skip this part, right? I think sometimes we just imagine because the cross of Christ happened that it minimizes our sin. But the truth is that the cross of Christ illustrates the seriousness of our sin. It doesn't minimize it. And yet our culture says, hey, it's not a big deal. At least you're not what they're doing. At least you're not as bad as that guy. It could have been worse. If it makes you feel bad, just don't think about it. Just keep going, grace, keep going. And James is saying, hey, we need to sit in our sin sometimes. We need to weep over our brokenness. We need to understand it's a big deal. Here's what's beautiful about it. Because it's like, man, that doesn't sound healthy. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. The world says, lift yourself up and you're telling me I should sit in my brokenness? Yes, because look what happens next in verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, the wonderful thing about the gospel is we don't have to lift ourselves up. We don't have to minimize our sin. We don't have to act like we're not as broken as we actually are. Because when we do that, guess what happens? It's the tender hand of Jesus that comes and picks us up. Isn't that beautiful? There's freedom for us to acknowledge how messed up we are. We don't have to lift ourselves because Christ our Savior comes and offers a loving and gentle hand. You see, the cross doesn't minimize our sin. It just offers us a path forward for joy as Jesus bears that burden. So we see friendship with the world means elevating our own desires, elevating ourselves, Friendship with God means humbling ourselves, seeking obedience through his grace. Listen, if this feels like a struggle in your life, that's good. It should, I get it. Struggle, struggle with this dichotomy, struggle with those hard questions. But hear this, there is more grace. There's more grace. 